Elisa Lichtenbaum, and welcome to WUNET Up Next. Joining us today is a legend with a capital L, an icon with a capital I, the one and only Mr. Dick Cavett. His Emmy Award-winning talk show, The Dick Cavett Show, raised the bar and reset the standard for television interview programs. He's here to talk about his remarkable and profound friendship with comedian Groucho Marx, the subject of a new American Masters film, Groucho and Cavett, premiering Tuesday, December 27th at 8 p.m. on PBS. Welcome to our podcast, Mr. Cavett. We are so thrilled to have you. Well, I, uh, I like being had, so thank you for saying <laughs> that. That was almost like a very Groucho Marx-esque response. I can kind of picture Groucho having a quick response like that. Probably the greatest thing I may have gotten out of all of this so-called career is knowing Groucho Marx. You opened the door to the perfect question, which is how did you and Groucho first meet? It was a strange place to meet. It was at a funeral, and it was the funeral of George S. Kaufman, the great uh, director, author, writer, wit. Somebody said once there are only two wits on television, Kaufman and Groucho, and now that Kaufman has died, television is (laughs) half-witted. Groucho admired Kaufman more than I think anyone on earth, and he had died, and I had decided, living in New York, to go to the funeral. I went. It was crowded. It seems like everybody I had ever seen caricatured by Hirschfeld was at that funeral somewhere. A lot of old timers and modern timers. And it was so crowded that they had to open up an ante room and put about 20 of us in there. And as I sat down, I was looking around and I then did a take that you could practically hear there sitting straight across from me in profile was Groucho Marx. I just got a a little of the thrill now again. (laughs) I thought, my God, I mean, I am in the same room, space, world with Groucho Marx. Several things were memorable about the funeral. One was that Kaufman's casket was there. And in front of it was Moss Hart. Um, Boys and girls may have to look up who Moss Hart is, but that's their problem. And um, Hart took out his eulogy. And before he began to read it, he said, I just heard George's voice back there in the casket saying it needs cutting. (laughs) Thing that he had frequently said to Groucho and others. Anyway, it was a wonderful eulogy. Finally, the whole nice service ended. People began to mill out. I decided to get in among them and see who I could recognize. And uh, I heard a woman's voice say, Hi, Groucho, I'm Edna Ferber. Mm-hmm. And I thought, we're not in Nebraska anymore, Toto. <laughs> uh, and others like that. Groucho began to walk toward Fifth Avenue, accompanied by Abe Burroughs and Art Carney. The two of them left, leaving Groucho. So I edged over to Groucho and I said, with my notorious wit, I'm a big fan of yours, Groucho. I thought he might hit me. (laughs) And he said, well, if it gets any hotter, I could use a big fan. (laughs) I knew I was with Groucho and we... He seemed to take to me some, and we walked down this beautiful day. We walked down Fifth Avenue, 
and ended up at the Plaza Hotel. Groucho insulted every doorman along the way and made me laugh. Got in the hotel, sat in one of the legendary big booths in the plaza. A waiter came over. Groucho said, um, have you got any fruit in the kitchen? I mean, besides the chef. <laughs> and that was sort of uh, perhaps not his greatest wit. But then we talked. And I have to pinch myself saying, is there any chance I'm dreaming this that I'm right. sending to Groucho? Uh, we had a wonderful lunch, and that was the beginning of our long, treasured friendship. That is incredible. It's like something out of a movie or a play. And yeah, what if I left something good out of that? No, I think those are the best parts of, the, that, no. of the meeting with Groucho. No, that's that's pretty fantastic. Well, we really became, to my still astonishment, great friends. I was living in a world that contained Groucho. I was at his house. I was. We went to the movies together. Mm -hmm. We went to a play. A woman came up at a theater in New York during an intermission. She said, "Groucho, what's the secret of your longevity?" <laughs> Groucho said, for Christ's sake, if you're going to use a word, try to pronounce it right. Well, everybody laughed. Oh, my goodness. Uh, because it was in that famous voice in right. which virtually everything he said through years of conditioning triggered a laugh. Now, was he like that kind of behind the scenes, too, like out of the public eye? Or was there something surprising about Groucho that you learned that fans might be surprised to learn another side of him? Well, one thing was how ardently he wished he had been a writer mm -hmm. he said he was really really attracted to that life more than the performing life and he was a writer and he wrote some of the original stories in the new yorker there you can find them i think they're listed under julius h marks oh wow yeah, in the film, Groucho and Cavett, the american mattress one you mentioned that he said that his first publication in the new yorker was he was more proud of that than anything yeah, else it, he ever did on camera, on stage, anywhere. Yeah, it was the greatest appeal that he had for a, a life for himself. The idea of it was to be a writer. And part of it was as a kid, he stole a toy printing press. In fact, that comes up in the show, I think. Yeah. Yes. And they let him go. But they didn't give me the printing press. Yeah. Uh, well, do you think that that was part of your special connection? Because when you when you look at the two of you, you know, he was the child of Jewish immigrants in New York City, had to drop out of school at age 12 to help support his family. Yeah. When the two of you met, you were 25, a fresh faced Yale graduate from Nebraska. Why do we always call people from the Midwest fresh faced? Have you ever thought about that? I don't know. I wish they'd stop it because my face is anything but fresh now. <laughs> but there are some pretty fresh fish people in Nebraska. Uh, the, the, one of them was named uh, Jonathan uh, Carson, Johnny Carson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there was, of course, William Jennings Bryan. We don't need to talk about him anymore. Right. But right. yeah, the, it, there is something about fresh faced. If you leave Nebraska, does your face age and wither yeah, or sour or you know and those of us from brooklyn do we look like we've been run over by a truck 
That I think is another conversation. So I'm sorry, I interrupted my own self while asking you the question, which was, um, do you think that you being a writer was part of the special bond? Because the both of you came from these completely different backgrounds. Yeah, that was part of the connection. Um, I remember once when Groucho was hosting The Tonight Show and Marsha Brickman, David Lloyd and I, three members of the staff, writing staff were in the office with Groucho on the phone rang. And he said, uh, yeah, I'm in the office here. I'm with three Shakespeare's. To him, writers were Shakespeare's. I, perhaps I didn't need to emphasize that. But everything he said in the week that he hosted the show uh, was treasurable. I think it's probably in the show. I mentioned that uh, he's talking to somebody and the idea of a hotel room comes up. He says, what's a hotel room? A number and it said uh, it's in, it's five eight four. And Groucho said five eight four. That sounds like a cannibal story. <laughs> it took a moment. That's good. <laughs> and yet he didn't have a sense of being ever oppressively on, mm. trying to be funny. James A. G. in a critical piece has one about Groucho, and he said the only thing that bothers me is I wonder if everybody catches some of Groucho's weirdest curves. And I experienced a weird curve of Groucho's. I was driving him and the great songwriter, Harry Ruby, Groucho's mm. best man, three little words, etc. I was driving them home from dinner, eagerly trying to hear every word I could hear while driving <laughs> of the two great men in the back seat. And suddenly Groucho said, that building over there, Harry, that's where your son lives, pointing across the street, Sunset Boulevard. And he said, no, 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 my son doesn't live there. He said, yeah, that, that apartment building that your, your son lives there. He said, Groucho, my son does not live in that building. He lives way over on the other side of Wilshire Boulevard. And Groucho said, your son doesn't live there? And Harry Ruby said, no. Groucho said, that's funny. I, I ran into him the other day and he never mentioned not living there. That's a weird curve. <laughs> you have also said, I know in many, many interviews when talking about Groucho or actually even interviewing him, introducing him on your show, you have said Groucho was my God. So I'm sort of picturing, you know, little Dick Cavett as like a little boy in Nebraska binging on Marx Brothers movies. Is that is that how it was? Were you, was it the Marx Brothers movies that called out to you? Well, yeah, I had never heard of the Marx Brothers, of course, as a small boy. And my father began to educate me about them. And he said when he was a kid, the Coconuts, the first film, came to Grand Island, Nebraska. And he said it was a revolution. He said people literally left their seats laughing and slid to the floor. And nobody had ever seen anything like it. When the Marx Brothers first exploded on your life, it was a memorable moment. Then, of course, the first Groucho I knew was from the movies. And, of course, I knew Groucho then later from the game show, what he always called it, the quiz show, You Bet Your Life. That's a treasure trove of wit. What other things inspired you when you were growing up in, in Nebraska? And I know your parents were both teachers. Both parents were teachers, which caused people, my contemporary child friends, to say, well, of course, you're smart, and your parents are teachers. Or, your folk, or a teacher would actually say, this paper you wrote, 
your parents helped you with this, didn't they? And I hated that. Yeah, yeah. That was a particular teacher that I particularly hated and whom I once accused of race prejudice in fifth grade. Oh, my goodness. That with. But that changed the tone and atmosphere of the rest of that school year. Yeah, well, and also just, just to um, let our listeners know just how respected your parents were in Nebraska as teachers, there is a Cabot Elementary School, I found out. In, a school. Yeah, a Cabot yeah, Elementary School great, named after your parents, which is pretty major. Great and much deserved honor. Them. They were the kind that kids said, that if, if there were only more teachers like this, the greatest teacher I ever had, you know, um, influenced my life, loved them. There are so many dismal teachers. It's nice to get one that makes you like school. Were you a like a straight A student and a voracious reader since you're, I know your dad was I an English teacher? I wasn't a great grade getter because I didn't study anything. And once my father noticed that where I had been getting only ones, I was getting twos and threes. And he said, you know, what would you think about a guy who had a, a big truck that he could take a lot of stuff in, but only used a one bushel basket in it? That's what you're doing with your brain. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed by that. Uh, and I wanted my father to like me, of course, so I straightened up. But yeah, it was always easy for me to get good grades. It's so easy that I often didn't bother to do it. Well, I think also sometimes when students are really smart, they just really want to be challenged. You know, like I think sometimes when things just come easily, one might kind of check out. Um, but circling back to Groucho and Cavett, this wonderful film that, that we are airing, how did this film come about? Can we call it a special? That's a strange Let's word. absolutely, call, let's call it an extra special. Okay. <laughs> People are just going to love it. I got to see it with an audience. And they just laughed all the way through. It's such a great piece of entertainment for people because we had so much of Groucho to choose from, from my show that we could have done too. My friend Robert Bader, who put the show together uh, and, and other things I've done, if you want your show put together, get Robert Bader. <laughs> he called one day and he said, you know how much Groucho Marx we have? <laughs> he was on, I don't know, maybe a dozen times. So that treasure trove of Groucho. Probably there could be a part two of this show. It was great for him because he had only written it. He hadn't heard any reaction for it. And when it played in that theater that night in East Hampton, they just laughed loudly all the way through. It was so nice to see people happy in these in this best of all possible worlds. Yes. Trying to survive and Yes, and actually one of the joys of the film, as you said, it's it's there's so much footage of Groucho on your show, and we're seeing complete numbers. We're seeing Hello, I Must Be Going, Show Me a Rose, My Favorite Lydia, Lydia, My Friend Lydia, A Duet With You. And I feel like in these crazy times that we live in, there's something so comforting about just watching pure entertainment. And the two of you, clearly, it's so clear and evident, even on camera, just how much you both adored each other. There are times when he's, you know, doing his Groucho stuff and you have a smile or you're I'm doing your dick habit yeah. thing and he has this smile. And, and also just the variety of the guests. One of the things that I learned from the film, I didn't know there was a Broadway musical called 
Minnie's boys about Groucho Marx's mother and his family. And yes. so the, the, the scene where you, the, you know, the footage of Shelley Winters on the show was mind blowing for me because I said, wait a minute, I'm like, you know, one of the biggest musical theater fans there is. How is, how did I not know about this? So I love. Well, one of the nice things about that Broadway musical about the Marx Brothers was that before its opening night, I was asked to go to a certain place in New York and pick up a man's overcoat. And I thought, was Groucho going to be cold? It was the black tail coat that Groucho wore in the movies. And I got to handle it. Oh, my goodness. Hand it over to him. It reminds me of, you know, the scene in All About Eve where Eve is holding Betty Davis's Margot Channing's gown and then Thelma Ritter gets it out of her hands. And, you know, I mean, it's you were holding a lot of history in your hands with with that one jacket. I, I realized that this coat, if it could talk, could entertain one million people. <laughs> if this coat could talk. On camera and off camera. I just realized this year, if I really need to brighten my spirits, and we could all use some of that these days, I just have to turn to remembering a P.S. from a letter to me from Groucho's daughter, Miriam. And at the end of the letter, somehow I had forgotten that she had, at the last line of the letter, written, my father thought the world of you. I just got to me now. <laughs> he had been dead for some couple of years by that time. But that line uh, is almost all I need to keep from deep sorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite memory of Groucho, whether it's on screen or off? I've never picked a, a, a favorite. There are just so many that mm-hmm. there's really no way to pick, pick a winner. A priest recognized Groucho in an elevator and said, I want to thank you for all the pleasure you've given the world. And Groucho said, well, I want to thank you for all the pleasure you've taken out of it. Oh, my goodness. Another priest, Groucho had a way of running into priests, apparently. Another one said, (laughs) my mother, my mother just worshipped you, Groucho. And he said, I didn't know your fellows were allowed to have mothers. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Now, on the show, he tells that story. And he, in a way, misquotes himself. He said, all he says is, uh, I didn't know you fellas had mothers. <laughs> Not quite as great a line, but in the voice of Groucho and in the context, it's just as funny. As, right, right, like, right. As if he'd said the other version. Uh, because the sound of that voice in our heads says comedy, laughter. Yeah, like he could pretty much say anything in that voice and it wouldn't matter. It, you know, he could be reciting the phone book in that voice and people would crack up. There was, in fact, there was a time when he said, you know, I can't excel anybody anymore. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I, whatever I say to them, and often I can't stand them. They say, oh, Groucho, and they laugh. I remember saying to a woman in, in public, um, I could tell you stories that would curl your hair. Assuming that is your hair. Oh my goodness. Some would take offense of that in a different context and with different casting. I, I may be telling the whole special here. <laughs> no, people will definitely, you're just wetting people's appetite. People would come up and say, Groucho, say something woody or say something funny. Once a man said, Groucho, this is my wife. Why don't you say something to insult my wife? 
And Groucho, half seriously at least, said, well, with a wife like that, you should be able to think of your own insult. <laughs> well, some people would cry, but if only he could get away with that. Groucho partly meant it. <laughs> oh, what a man. The other brothers. I talked to uh, Zeppo once on the telephone, and I missed a chance to meet Harpo, and I've never gotten over it. Everybody adored Harpo Marx. That they would say, he's the best person I ever met. Just wonderful, delightful, friendly, funny. And I was working for Jack Parr, and it was my first week with Jack, and Jack was extremely difficult and neurotic and wonderful in his way. And, but I thought, I can't accept this invitation to go over to the Algonquin Hotel this afternoon and meet Harpo, who's there talking about his book, Harpo Speaks. I'm afraid Jack will find out I'm gone and I'll be canned in my first week. One of my regrets. Do you ever have things in your life where you realize how dumb you were? Oh, yes, many, many, many. And sometimes, you know, they say, like, as one gets older, you sort of realize eh, it wasn't such a big deal. And I sort of find, like, sometimes, you know, you still sort of feel all those years later. It's like, damn, you know, I should have done this, should have done that. But every, everything kind of aligns for, you know, for a reason. Now, were they, were all the Marx Brothers, did they remain close throughout the years? Were they very close? They were very, well, but they sort of had to be. They were together every day in vaudeville for years. Right. I couldn't detect any animosity that existed among them or between them or any of them. They were exasperated by Chico, and that's the right pronunciation, because he chased chicks, get it? Uh, uh, Chico was a great lady man, but his gambling Groucho said, if you want to know how much Chico lost, all you'd have to do is add up how much all of us earned. <laughs> wow. Oh that, that really intense, neurotic, almost crazy gambling curse. Yeah. I only met one of them, but if they had to pick one, I think I picked the right one. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. 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 And the, and the film is so extraordinarily moving because that mutual affection is so, yeah. it's practically palpable. I didn't realize that was so noticeable. People watching, seeing the show, as you have said, would say, it's so easy to see how much he liked you. And I was too, always too excited being around him to notice such things. Funny, things keep coming back. I picked up a letter he wrote to me once. He wrote semi-frequently. And I had never noticed the P.S. the first time I had read this letter years earlier. Probably most people of a certain age know who the actor Peter O'Toole was, fans of Lawrence of Arabia. But the P.S. was P.S. Did you ever notice that Peter O'Toole has a double phallic name? Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. I never thought about it that. It took me a moment. <laughs> No, I'll never I, be able to watch Lawrence of Arabia the same way again with that knowledge. <laughs> well, you mentioned Robert Bader, the who put together this wonderful Groucho and Cavett film, and I am going to bring out Exhibit A now. I know that you've worked on other projects together, including um, Dick Cavett's Vietnam, Dick Cavett's Watergate, and also oh, The Hollywood Greats. Yes. This is from my personal collection. I did not like run out and go and buy it because I knew we would be speaking. I'm going to buy it from you. 
<laughs> but I, when I was looking at the wonderful liner notes. I love liner notes. Do I come off uh, favorably in this? You absolutely do. And one of the most charming things about these episodes is the introductions. So I got this I got this collection when it was first released, which was actually 2006. And I said, oh, I'm speaking to DeCabot. Let me, let me revisit some of my favorite episodes. So I thought Catherine Hepburn was one of my favorites. And then- Well, of course. And then um, I actually, when I was watching it this time around, I was actually a little stressed out watching it. And I'll tell you why. What? Because before that, we had the, the secretly recorded footage of her inspecting the studio and tear up the carpet, Richard, and all of these. Yeah, lose things. that so, carpet, get rid of the carpet. It's, you know, she, she did not like that carpet. But um, can you explain to our lovely listeners why it was such a coup to get Katherine Hepburn on your show? She was such a mammoth star, uh, not known for appearing in such a setting at all. And so it was it was a get that just almost knocked out Barbara Walters. <laughs> oh, my goodness. She said she hated me for it. Uh, but I, I, she actually, I think if I did a show with Hepburn, but to get Catherine Hepburn was like getting God <laughs> Grant or uh, President Roosevelt or someone ungettable like that. I've never met anybody remotely resembled her. She was afraid in a funny way. Mm. Now, that's a woman that you don't imagine ever being afraid of anything. Yeah. Somebody had a cobra and said, pick it up. I dare you. She probably would have done it. Uh, she was just great in that way. And after the first show with Hepburn aired, had earthquake-like effect, and I talked to her the next day, and she said, you've made me a goddamn hero. <laughs> People yell at me from their apartment windows. Saw you on the show last night and so on. And she, she accused me of having made her even more adorable than anybody would ever want to be. <laughs> was it was it nerve wracking speaking with her, knowing what went on before the cameras started rolling, how she was, you know, was it tear up the carpet, paint the walls, you know, and she was, I felt at any uh, minute oh, she could uh, just. What was the one thing that she said? Uh, oh, yeah, she's checking out the studio. No guest ever did this. No guest ever came to see the studio, see the set, see what it would look like, see where they would sit. And in her professional thoroughness, she did. And we were prepared for her, of course. But by the way, never dreaming that halfway through it, she would say, why don't we just do the show now? Oh my goodness. That's why I'm not well, elegantly dressed in it. But she got what she wanted. At one point, she complains about something, and the stage end says, well, if we did that, we'd have to move. The, don't tell me what's wrong. Just fix it. Right. Mm -hmm. And at one point, in the, this is in the secretly recorded footage of, of her inspecting the studio. She's, I don't know, you know, so she's like testing the table. Can she put her foot on it without it breaking? And then, I don't know, there was something she wanted fixed. I don't know if she wanted water and, you know, nobody heard her. And so she's like, and nobody's listening to me. And she said, yeah. it was she just the so... orange carpet would be going to get all the attention. Yeah, yeah. Sense. But at the same time, it's such a testament to her respect for you and her admiration. The fact that on the spot, she said, okay, let's do this. 
her body language for that interview is so relaxed and comfortable. She's leaning back, her feet are on the table, her hair is just kind of, you know, up in a, loosely up in a bun. And then she sat with you for three hours. Wasn't it like a a marathon three hour taping session or something? It was just a treasure that I was able to um, unearth with her. I had met her, of course, before because I was at Stratford as a sort of apprentice the Shakespeare Festival, the summer she was in the festival. Odd moment, collector's item moment. There were Portia and her four lords, the director had added. Four of us were costumed similarly. And whenever she appeared, we appeared as a kind of accompanying quartet. So backstage, she's ready to go on for the scene with the four little lords. And she's moving her feet. She used to scrape her feet before going on to get her energy up or something. (laughs) Suddenly she turned to the four of us just before her cue to go on and said, why anybody has to be one sex or another, I'll never know. Oh, my. This was just out of the blue? (laughs) I still think about it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> now did you now did you become friends after the interview or like did you ever see each other in Connecticut because she was was she living in Old Saybrook at the time or no she was in Manhattan. She had a house in Manhattan, a townhouse in Manhattan next to uh, Sondheim I think, right? Is it Sondheim? She was on a street where there were quite a few show people by accident. I don't know East 46 or whatever. Yeah, like Turtle Bay I think it is, somewhere in Turtle Bay. Yeah, yeah, she, uh, and apparently she was a, a good neighbor. Although once she borrowed a friend's plant from his porch and took it with her. <laughs> oh my goodness, Catherine uh, Hepburn, plant thief? Who she knew? Give it back. She claims she always meant to give it back. And I never heard of the idea. Maybe, maybe we don't do this in Brooklyn. Borrowing plants from people. That's that. That's that's a new one. It was a rather large plant to do. <laughs> so it's not like she could slip it in her purse or anything. It was a kind of, she had a kind of an acquisitive thing. I, I had a Tilly hat, the kind of explorer's sort of hat, uh, brand Tilly. And I was wearing my Tilly hat and thinking I looked great in it. And we were standing in front of her house and she suddenly said, where'd you get that hat? And I told her and she put it on, saw her reflection and thought she looked wonderful in it. I never saw it again. <laughs> oh my goodness. Hey, seize the day, seize the hat. Wouldn't <laughs> anybody let Catherine Hepburn have their hat? Anything yeah. that she wants, exactly. Now, may I ask you about, there was another um, interview that is part of this Hollywood greats collection that I keep on holding up because I'm so excited that I own yeah. it. Now, can people still buy these? Can people, for? For people who are dinosaurs like me who still have DVDs, can they like get it online or something? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it must be. Okay, so basically just so since this is um, a podcast and those of you listening can't see what I'm talking about here, what we are talking about here, there is a compilation of the Dick Cavett Show episodes, the the Hollywood greats, and we have Robert Altman, Fred Astaire, Peter Bogdanovich, Marlon Brando, Mel Brooks, Frank Capra, Betty Davis, Kirk Douglas, Catherine Hepburn, we have Hitchcock, we of course have Groucho Marx, the list goes on. And Mr. Cavett has wonderful introductions for each episode. And in the Betty Davis 
episode, your intro, in your introduction to that one, you say, this was perhaps the most fun I have ever had on stage, on set, anywhere in my career, speaking with Betty Davis. Can you talk about what made that so magnificent? Uh, I had the best time I ever had with quite a few people, but Betty Davis is unique. We had a bond rather quickly on camera, I guess, which accounted for my ability during a pause for what to say next, to answer what anybody would ask anybody at such a point. How did you lose your virginity, Betty? <laughs> the audience gasped, laughed, and she, being Betty Davis, said, I'll tell you, and she did. <laughs> and do we remember do we remember what the answer was? Yes, she said Without I Without getting graphic, of course. Being old fashioned, I I, I waited until I married. Mm. And the audience applauded this. And then and <laughs> in spite of that, she said, and I don't recommend that. Waiting nearly killed me. Oh, my goodness. And then oh they applauded goodness. that. The same people who applauded the conservative saying. <laughs> they were just applauding anything that she said. One of my favorite moments from that interview was she's telling this whole story about how she was bitten by a wasp in her arm, and it was near a nexus of veins. And so her arm blew up and her face blew up and she nearly died. And she's telling this whole very dramatic medical story of medical woe. Mm -hmm. And you're listening very in a very the engaged way that you always have as a host and as a guest. And she finishes her story and you say, did you ever think that perhaps Joan Crawford placed that that wasp in your dressing room, and the smile <laughs> on her face was so delicious that I, I had that? to keep on rewinding that that part over and over again. I watched it like twelve times because it was such a delicious moment. I'm glad you reminded me of that. I, if I if I once knew that, I've forgotten it. But that yeah, she had grown Joan Crawford were not what you'd call a mutual admiration society by any means. <laughs> The notorious feud, the notorious feud. Another thing that I never had a guest do except Betty Davis. Usually, if you named someone that it was known in the business and that they didn't like each other, or maybe even in the public knew they didn't, because they were on television, they could think of something nice, not too bad to say about them. And because I got on such a good footing with her, I said once, who's the worst pig you ever worked with? Betty. Miriam Hopkins. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Did she give a reason why? Very refreshing frankness, you must admit. Really? Oh, my goodness. Oh. And she also, she looked marvelous in that, in that interview. She came sashaying onto the set with like this beautiful, like a black mink beret and this beautiful black, and, and I, all I could think of was like, Edith Head, Edith Head, Edith Head. It was, it was, it was like, she and it was such an interesting contrast to Catherine Hepburn, who's like leaning back, wearing her sandals, like with her unpolished toenails. But both of them very staunch Yankee women, which is very interesting that, you know, that they have those that in common. Somebody said about her years ago, what is, this woman is unique in many ways. For one thing, you feel she stands for something. You don't have any idea what it is. Gives <laughs> <is> that feeling. <laughs> yeah. Well, she also was so wonderfully candid in in that interview. You asked her, "Oh, was Claude Rains a happy person?" You said, "I always think of him as being so happy." And she said, "Actors, 
really aren't a happy people. She said, you know, we work so hard at what we do when something goes wrong, terribly wrong, we're depressed for days, we're lonely, you know, because we're so committed to our craft and our work. And it really takes a very understanding partner to appreciate that. And I just found that resonated so much because I have like a lot of friends who are actors and dancers and whatever. And it's, I mean, you know, it's a brutal, brutal industry made even harder now, you know, with the pandemic. Funny to mention Jim because I, at one point I, she said so many people that I've treasured have gone. And then she said, but when Claude Rains died, and just held it that it, as if to say that did it. I mean, uh, yeah. from then from that point on, I realized that a curtain had come down. That definitely is an interview I'm going to watch over and over and over again, and not just for the Joan Crawford dig. Um, okay, so now let's travel just a little bit back to your past. Growing up in Nebraska, you have your esteemed parents who are the esteemed educators. When did you know that you were bitten by the acting bug or the showbiz bug or the showbiz writing bug? Whichever bug bit you, when did it bite and how did you know? I don't know when I had that specific thought. It was just that I didn't care about anything else. Mm -hmm. I'd been in a play in high school and there was a, believe it or not, an equity summer theater in Lincoln, Nebraska for several summers. So I got to be the Winslow boy, another prime parts. And my father nicely said, you know, you really ought to think about law school or dentist school. Lincoln is a notoriously great dental college and something in me turned over and fell asleep every time the subject (laughs) came up. Because I knew that none of that interested me. But I realized that means the one thing that does is show business. Yeah. So when you were at Yale, what did you major in? Uh, English and uh, senior year, you could drama major in the drama school, the graduate school. Right. From which Julie Harris and it's Paul Newman went there for a while. But yeah, the fact that I was in New Haven at Yale, which was across the street virtually from the Schubert Theater, where everything on its way to Broadway, it's the almost everything played there. So I saw the world premiere night of My Fair Lady and shows like that. Oh my goodness. Or any shows like that, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I I was just rolling in it. It It was meant for me, it seemed. Yeah. So when you moved to New York after graduation, how did you start pounding the pavement? Were you were you doing acting auditions? Were you trying to get job? Because it seems like writing is what kind of puts you first on the map. The only, the only thing I can say about that is I was in the Williamstown Summer Theater for, I think, the third or fourth time. Mm-hmm. Loved that. But I wasn't known as an actor anywhere else. And at the end of this one season, somebody sharing a makeup room with me said, what are you going to do when the season ends? I guess you'll be going to New York. Huh? And I thought, oh, I guess I'll be going to New York. <laughs> and I did. Got a roach-infested apartment, made rounds, heard my 8 by 10 glossy that I could barely afford to get a set of made. Uh, once or twice, I heard it hit the wastebasket after I left the agent's oh. office. 
But I guess I knew I was going to stay there, and I did. What was, did you have like a day job so that you could pay your rent, like doing something like delivering newspapers or writing or? I worked in drab jobs. I got into a Signal Corps movie the first year there. And that's all I did all that year that was anything to do with working as an actor. But I thought, gee, I've made it. I'm in a movie. This Signal Corps movie can be found somewhere online. Mm. I hear the sound of everybody Googling as we speak. <laughs> but your big break was becoming a writer on the Jack Parr show, kind of the golden door that opened and welcomed you. That became an off-told tale, but uh, some people don't believe it. I was working as a copy boy at Time Magazine, which is the lowest rung of any ladder you've ever known. <laughs> you picked up stuff and took it to people's offices and brought stuff back. That's how much brains the copy boy took. One day I saw a column. The paper happened to be open to some entertainment gossip person's column. And in heavy type, as I was worshiper of Jack Parr, I saw Jack Parr worries about his monologue more than any other part of his life. I went home and wrote him a monologue, and I went to NBC, and I knew how to get up to the studio, and I had sneaked into his show many times. And here he came out of the men's room, and I had done something that's been pointed out was very clever and significant. I typed it, folded it, and then I thought, do I hand it to him like this if I ever do actually meet him? And I had a CBS envelope from something. Mm. And I put it in the CBS envelope or below it, and he spotted that, and he stopped to talk. And I said, I've written something for you. And to make a long story even more boring. Best story ever. <laughs> Well, I, I, I gave it to him and then sat in the audience thinking, I wonder if he read it. Oh, at the beginning of the show, Jack took something out of his pocket and it was folded paper. And I thought I've made it. But the folded paper was something else. Oh, it wasn't your monologue. <laughs> Thank down at my seat and thought it's all over. And during the show, suddenly well, a woman said, um, how about that hijacking of that plane? They're calling the pirate incident in the sky. And Jack said, uh, yeah, um, it must have been startling to have come over the loudspeaker. Attention, please. This is your pirate speaking. <laughs> and people got the pun and that got a laugh. And then something else from my notes, he had lived. That's wow. that story. Wow. After that, Jack said, you want to write, don't you? Why don't you come back a week from now and we'll see. And I did. This is just incredible. Things like this don't happen nowadays. You know, I mean, it, this is just, even the fact that you snuck into the studio, like you can't even sneak in a bottle of water into a studio these days past the security guards. Yeah, I, I, the idea that you could walk into any studio, really, which fortunately most people didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Gone, I'd gone to rehearsals of the Jackie Gleason show carrying a CBS envelope. I did a lot and eventually from the par show went on to performing in nightclubs and the hell of doing the same act every night for weeks on end. Mm -hmm. Seems like the odds against our 
being here now would be great. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like the stars were aligned, even if you kind of helped align them a bit. And it's just so wonderful and magical. And it sounds like even if you hadn't managed to sneak your way into the studio and various theaters, that somehow you would have found another way or the universe would have found another way to welcome you. Well, that's interesting you should say that because I, I had this feeling it's going to happen. Some force is going to make me famous. They're going to come and get me and put me in. <laughs> in fact, I sort of put myself in, but with a lot of help from, say, Jack Parr on others. Yeah. Jack was a great ad libber. My God, he never got enough credit for that. One time, Fat Jack Leonard, as he was known, a comedian, insult comedian, sounded like that. And at one point, Jack decided, he said to me, when Fat Jack comes on tonight, he survives only if you say something back to what he said, and he plays off that. So when he says something, I'm not going to answer. I'm just going to let him sit there. Fat Jack got desperate. He began to perspire, and I felt sorry for him. He was, he just, this great ad libber, this great comic, ran out of gas. Oh, no. And I thought, I, I feel like I ought to go up there and help him or something. What can we do? And he, desperation-wise, thought of just some words to use, a fact out of his life. It was sad to see. He said, for no reason, you know, my wife is an acrobat. Jack said she'd have to be. Big laugh. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wife is an acrobat. And it was true. Wow. <laughs> Bullseye. Bullseye. Well, I have to ask this next question for the Broadway fans who may be listening to this. You were the narrator in the original 1987 production of Into the Woods, the famous Sondheim musical that is now experiencing a second wave of fame, yeah. or maybe a third, fourth, or fifth, with the current revival. Mm -hmm. You were talking before about Betty Davis being devastated when Claude Rains passed away. I think people who didn't even know Sondheim were devastated when Stephen Sondheim passed away, I think it was about a year ago already. Do you have any memories, any vivid memories of working on that production or working with Sondheim? Well, I was, was the narrator mm -hmm. and the script had a narrator in it, but being what I was, I added my own comments from night to night. <laughs> this did not entirely please the author of the script. Ah, uh, Mr. Lapine. The audience liked it, and so I kept doing it. Right. I had one I remember. I was doing what the author did, but then I would add something. And this night I added uh, something that caused someone in the audience to point out that I had my hands in my pockets while talking. And a guy yells, hey, Dick, you're playing with yourself? Oh, my goodness. And I said, I've got people who do that for me. <gasps> Ooh. This got one of the longest laughs here at, and I think it was the Groucho influence, probably. Probably, probably. Oh my goodness. Being able to do that in a big hit show like that was a lot of fun. Oh my goodness, so much fun. Oh, and you were also in the Rocky Horror Show, also as a narrator. Clearly you were Broadway's go-to narrator. Have you seen the current revival of Into the Woods, the one that is playing now? I want to see it. I haven't seen it. I'd love to see it. 
I hope I don't stand up and ad lib something in the audience. <laughs> well, if you do, I hope I'm in the audience at the time. And I suppose one last question before we part, since the Dick Cavett Show was such a big hit for so many years and the list of illustrious guests goes on and on and on. Mm. If the Dick Cavett Show came back for one week only, you have five episodes, one hour each, one guest per episode, so you can have a nice extensive conversation. Who would your yeah. five guests be? Who are your dream guests for the new Dick Cavett show? Who well, I would really like to get, they are mostly dead. Tell, bring it, bring it you're on. Not mostly dead, you're either dead or you're not, but <laughs> the fact is there are people, what you've opened here is the subject of what because of my reputation of getting all these people that nobody would enable yet, there were a handful, but it still distresses me that I didn't get them. One was the great Mike Nichols. One was Frank Sinatra. And I almost thought I had him, but I, I, I think I blew it. I didn't press enough. We would, we would have had a great time together, but sometimes I didn't get someone because they idiotically had labeled me an intellectual when I first, mm. partly because I had read at least two books. <laughs> that made me an intellectual in television. That's why we love you at PBS. We love a well-read person. <laughs> well, intellectual label is not something you want to go for if you longevity is your <laughs> Mike Nichols and uh, Sinatra and who was Oh, Cary Grant. <gasps> I think I almost had Cary Grant. Met him, talked with him, but his objection was, oh, they'll find out how dumb I am. <gasps> no. And I think he thought that. And what? I said something like, well, you could only be so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. And that didn't win him over? No. <laughs> And I think one little more, one more tease, standing at a big party once, I heard a voice behind me say, hello, Dick Cabot, and it was Cary Grant. And we talked. Anyway, I didn't get him. Oh. I don't know who today I would want, especially. Yeah. Now, how, now, in order to court the guests, like, what did you have to do? Like, this was before email. Um, was it getting on the, to, to kind of court the guests and... Um, invite them to your show? Did you have to pick up the phone and call them? Did you have to take them to lunch? Was it your people calling their people? How did it all work? Usually my staff, at the beginning, I thought, I want to know everybody who's coming on and I want to make my suggestions and I want to go to the production meetings. And that was not good mm -hmm. because I could always think of some reason I didn't want a particular person. The reason could be that I didn't like them or that I was kind of afraid of them, <laughs> or they had been on before and been great, and I had this unexpressed fear that I would make the next appearance not great, oh. which was a stupid fear, but I had it. I decided to let the staff book the show. I could object if I wanted to, but it worked better that way. Now, who scared you? Because I have to say, I was, even though I'm, I was so looking forward to speaking with you, because as Exhibit A proves, I am a fan. Part of me thought, oh my goodness, this is, how do you interview the greatest interviewer of all time? A little pressure there. So who scared you, Dick Cavett, <laughs> as a potential guest, as a potential guest? Who intimidated me? 
Well, very early on, when I mean my first week, I had Timothy Leary on, a name of the 60s that is much forgotten by younger folks, but he had been at Harvard and he had a book called, or his philosophy for the young folks of the day was turn on a drug reference, move in and drop out of society. Um, and he started pressing that. And I thought, this isn't necessarily a good message, but I don't know what to do about it. Well, I heard myself say, intimidated some, you know, I really think you're full of crap. Oh, my God. That was either my first or second week on the show. I and got how did he respond? A nasty mail about that. <laughs> One woman said that she dropped her iron on her foot while watching that and laughing. And he was full of crap, as it turns out. So I wasn't lying. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's probably refreshing for an audience to see. Uh, for some reason, I was afraid of Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. We turned out fine, and there was no reason to. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I could be intimidated, usually work through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think probably because Hitchcock's movies were so terrifying that, you know, maybe you expected him to show up with a bunch of birds that would attack you or something. <laughs> you could both get to like somebody you didn't care for and the opposite. And poor old Timothy Leary was the, the, the best example of that, I guess. Well, I look forward to revisiting the rest of the episodes, and I'm going to have to pay extra close attention to the Hitchcock interview. And um, I suppose before we bid each other adieu, do you have any final words about Groucho you would like to share? Anything that the younger generation who may not know much about Groucho, what can they look forward to when they see Groucho and Cavett? What will they take? Or what can anyone of any age take away from this film. So benighted that you don't know the name Groucho Marx, make sure you find out who it is. It's funny, I first knew him through the movies, mm -hmm. whereas younger people knew him from the game show and still younger people <laughs> knew him from my show. I don't know. I just thank whatever gods may be. What's that from? Oh, my indomitable soul, a poem. Anyway, uh, that we met, I got to know him. All the memories from it are wonderful. And I was truly blessed to know, oh, I hate that word. I was truly favored to know that probably the greatest comic giant of our time and wit and I became friends. I stand a lot of disappointment that that can uh, cure whenever I need the feeling. <laughs> and the film definitely is a big mood uplifter. It's just so joyous. And I found myself wanting to, you know, Google everything Groucho Marx, everything Dick Cavett. The only time I can guarantee somebody will really, really laugh, possibly all the way through as the audience that I saw it with did. I'm glad it's out there. Yeah, we definitely need to laugh these days. That is for sure. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Cavett, and the most delightful conversation. Well, you're more than welcome, whatever that means. Put it eloquently, you did a hell of a job. I hope they recorded some of this. <laughs> Groucho and Cavett will premiere 
on the PBS series American Masters, Tuesday, December 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It will also stream on the American Masters website, pbs.org slash American Masters, and the PBS video app. Thank you to our audio engineer, Josh Broom, our executive producer and editor, Dana McBride, and our production coordinator, Rita Grafeo. And to all of our lovely listeners out there, thanks for spending time with us. I'm Elisa Lichtenbaum.